Well, you can turn over in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings in the 13th chapter. Turn there and read with us or look up on the screen. Put this question up there for you. Can we pray and ask for something outside of our boundaries and be empowered to do it? If that were true, does it mean that our boundaries have been expanded? What does this does this say about why it might have been out of reach before? Now, this is a concept I wanted to get into for a little while, but sometimes people ask for things in prayer and set themselves up for failure. The enemy loves to entice us into such prayers because they have a very negative effect on our faith. We want to take a look at some of the ways we can stay out of that. As we turn over here to 2 Kings chapter 13, we're going to begin at verse 1. In the, 20th, in the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel and Samaria. Now sometimes Jehoaz is also called Joash. Don't let that confuse you. Sometimes you'll see Joash for the southern kingdom. Sometimes you'll see Joash for the northern kingdom. I think Chronicles particularly calls him Joash. But here he is called Jehoaz. He's the son of Jehu, became king over Israel and Samaria, and reigned seventeen years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. So Jehoaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed them. Then the Lord gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped from under the hands of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. So they asked for a deliverer, because they were being oppressed, because they were disobedient. When you fall into disobedience, don't do the things that God says to do, then things come against you. And this is what they had. So they asked God to deliver them. In verse 6 it says, Nevertheless they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam who made Israel sin but walked in them and the wooden image also remained in Samaria. So they, they didn't quit the sin they were doing but they asked God for relief and God sent them a deliverer it says. The um, Now, Jehoaz is the son of Jehu. You remember, he is the one that Elisha anointed to take the place of Omri, uh, the, the kingly line, because of Ahab, mostly because of Ahab. Omri was no saint either. He was, he was no good. But that whole line was bad, and so God said, we're going to wipe out that whole line and destroy it completely. And Jehu went out there with all his zeal, and he wiped out everybody who was born to that house. Elisha was anointed. If you remember that the word was given to Elijah, that he were, there were three things to do. That's when he was discouraged. There were three tasks that he was given to do, and he fulfilled one. The other two were filled, fulfilled by Elisha. Now, Elisha was around from... Oh, I'm sorry, Elijah came on the scene around 870 B.C., and he was scooped up in the chariot around 842 B.C. That's about, and, uh, well, this particular story 
where he received the three tasks. This came about when he had begun his ministry. He went out and he proclaimed the, uh, the, the drought that would last for three and a half years. And then he disappeared and no one could find him. And then after three and a half years, the Lord brought him back and he gave word that it was going to rain after they did the demonstration on the mountain. And they made the altar. He made the altar for the Lord. And the fire came down from heaven, burned up their sacrifice, and didn't come down and burn up the sacrifice for Baal. So this, these are the things that had gone on. And then we know that Ahab's wife, Jezebel, she said, I'm going to kill you, basically. And he got discouraged, and he flees to the mountain of God. That's where God led him. And he's told to anoint Elisha. And there are two others that were given that he was to anoint. Now, he anoints Elisha in about the year 865. So it's approximately took him a year, year and a half until he got out there and anointed Elisha. Now, if we just look at the straight up timeline, it looks like Elisha is mentored for about 23 years before Elijah is taken up. Elisha dies around 795 B.C., so he probably died at the age of around 95. He was a, he's an old guy. Now, here's something that may not jump out at you when you read the narrative in, 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 sorry, in the book of Kings. When you read about Elijah and you read about, about Elisha, what it looks like is that Elijah's ministry continued on until the time that he was taken up in the whirlwind. And then the ministry of Elisha began. And that's not exactly how it happened. The ministry of Elisha actually overlaps the ministry of Elijah. The years of mentoring are times he actually did things on his own. Many of the miracles that were done under Elisha's ministry were done when Elijah was here. Even though it comes after the narrative that says Elijah was taken away. The reason you find that out is if you look at the kings that were mentioned in the stories where Elisha is is, uh, doing these particular miracles, those kings existed during the time of Elijah. And so they were both going on to ministry at the same time. Here's what's interesting with, with the ministry of Elisha is that after he he leaves, we have a couple of miracles that are done. And we really don't hear from Elisha again until he's on his deathbed. It seems, this is just speculation, but it seems that the ministry of Elijah and Elisha were given primarily to eradicate the worship of Baal out of Israel. That's who uh, Elijah came up against. When Elisha anointed Jehu, it was to eradicate this false religion from them. And Jehu went out, if you go through the chapters before here, you will see that Jehu went out with such zeal. In fact, he was telling people, look at my zeal. This guy had incredible zeal to get things taken care of for God. In fact, he, he, he remember, he, um, he calls for all the worshipers of Baal. And he said, Ahab worshipped Baal a little. I'm going to worship him a lot. I want to have a big festival. Come on, everyone who's out here, get them. And he had the army surround the place. And after he had them all in there, he said, everybody look around. Make sure there are no worshipers of God here. We don't want anything to corrupt our, our presence. Get them out if they are. And so they looked around, made sure that they were all gone. And so just the worshipers of Baal. And he says, hold on for a minute. And he leaves. 
and they said, if any of these people escape, I will demand their head for yours. And they went in and they killed all the prophets of Baal. So whoever was left after Elijah was done, Jehu made sure he took care of it. So this is going on while Elijah is on the uh, around. Elijah is doing a lot of these miracles while Elijah is, is on the earth. They're kind of going and doing ministry at the same time. Which really makes a change when you look at how Elisha teams up with Elijah. Because we get the impression sometimes from that story that Elisha never left Elijah's side. But apparently he did. But he knew this day was going to be different. He says, you are not getting rid of me today. I will stay right here until this this goes until this happens. Now it said in verse five that the Lord would give a deliverer. Now either this is an unnamed deliverer with unnamed battles, or the deliverer is Jehoash, who's also called Joash, as we said. He's the king that followed Jehoaz. It would seem that the deliverer here is Jehoash. He has said that we're going to send a deliverer, but it doesn't happen until that king who asked for it dies. So however many more years they went on with the Syrians uh, bothering them, we don't know. But let's uh, go on here in verse verse 7. I, I don't know. Oh, I didn't put this in your outline, but Jehoash, the name means God has bestowed or donated. God has bestowed or donated. Now it says here in verse 6 that they didn't repent. Despite all the stuff that went on, they didn't repent. How much, how, how willing must God be to help us? If he helps them, even though he knows they're not going to repent, they're going to go back to, to doing this thing. Now, here's what you have to see in this in this passage. They leave the worship of Baal. They don't leave the worship of the golden calves. The worship that Jeroboam instituted, they don't leave that. But as far as the Baal worship goes, it is gone. Now, it is brought back. It will be brought back. But for right now, they eradicated it out of the land. They just didn't get it out of their hearts. They still love worshiping this thing. So verse 7, he left the army of Jehoaz, only 50 horsemen, this is the king of Syria, 10 chariots and 10,000 foot soldiers, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. So all the all the horsemen, all the chariots, he, uh, the king of Syria destroyed them, gave them a few, left a few for them. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoaz, all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoaz rested with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. Then Joash, his son, uh, reigned in his place. Now, in verse 10, we'll have in the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, became king over Israel and Samaria. Here's something that is a little bit different than we usually have in the records of the kings. We have his entire life described briefly, and then he dies, and then we find out what he did. But he reigned 16 years. He said in verse 11, He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth. See, we're going back to Jeroboam. We're not going back to Ahab. He made Israel sin, but walked in. And now the rest of the acts of Joash, all that he did, and his might, which, the, which with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on the throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria. And uh, let's pick up here verse 14. 
Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. So Joash visits a dying Elisha. And he's very sad about Elisha dying. Now, I'm not sure how this went on. Now, Elisha and Elijah, they mostly proclaimed against the worship of Baal. We don't really see them saying too much about the golden calf. I'm not saying that they didn't. You would think that if they proclaimed against one, they would have proclaimed against the others. But we don't hear about that. The story we looked at last week, we saw they were they came against the golden calf worship. But in this one, uh, we don't see that as we don't see that as much. We see mostly them coming against the one for Baal. So he comes down to Elisha. And look at one of the things that he says. Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Now, there are no chariots around Elisha right now. And there are no horsemen. But this is the phrase that Elisha spoke about Elijah when he saw him taken up. What that will tell you is that the king of Israel had had conversations with Elisha. And they talked about what had gone on. And he told him the stories. When Elijah went up, I saw him go up and I said this. And so what, what the king is saying is, I understand you're going to heaven. And he declared the same words to him that Elisha had declared over Elijah. That's kind of a heart-wrenching moment, especially for a idolatrous king. But he's all, all weepy right now, but not apparently weepy enough to change all the, the sins that they had gotten into before. But God still used them. Now, if uh, I didn't ask, ask this before, but Brother Keith, we have a small table that we could bring up to the front. I appreciate that. So we see that Joash is familiar with uh, Elisha's ministry. In uh, verse 14, Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. So Elisha apparently died sick. There's a whole lot of things that are written about why he died sick. We're not going to even get into those right now because our purpose here is something different. We can get sidetracked too easily. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Now we'll stop there for, for a moment while they're... Uh, getting together our our table. Now, we, we don't have a whole lot that is going on with Elisha. Some people will just give you this much about him, him getting sick. We don't know what happened with Elisha for, I would say, uh, the last couple of decades of his life. We don't know what happened. We don't know if he was involved in any ministry. If it was, it doesn't seem to have been recorded. If there were any miracles that he had done, and there could well have been some miracles that, they had, that he had done, they weren't recorded. If he had a message from God that he delivered to the kings, it, we, it had have happened, but it's not recorded. I can't tell you that Elisha did nothing for all those uh, the last remaining decades, but we can't find anything in the Word of God that was written about it. So it may be that he either went into an early state of retirement, God spoke to him about doing some things, and he didn't do them, or for whatever reason, uh, he did nothing to note that we can tell. Now, the one thing you will get in trouble with is if you try and come up with why something happened when you're not in touch with all the facts. 
we are not in touch with all the facts of why Elijah was sick. Why he died. Now, he didn't die young. As far as we can tell, he died at about age 95, which is a pretty good age for, uh, for them folks. But he died sick, and a lot of people get hung up on that. And Well, uh, here's a man who performed miracles, and even after he died, we're going to learn in this chapter that there was a miracle that was performed with, with him. But um, we, we don't know what was going on. I don't know if he was in some kind of disobedience. I don't know if his death was supposed to show something to the, to the people there. We don't know. And so I can't, I don't, I don't want to come up with a, a summary, well, Elisha was missing God, because I don't know that he was God. I can't say that he was uh, doing everything that God said and he just got sick. We, we don't know. So don't make any judgments when you don't have all the facts. So that's one we just kind of stay away from because the Word of God doesn't give us any indication of it as to what happened. But there are people out there who have all sorts of, of things to go on. But anyway, what he does do right here, this is the, a word that he gets from God here at the end. He said, take a bow and some arrows. And he says this to the king. Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Now, he didn't have anybody bring them to him. He's the king, but he apparently didn't have an armor bearer with him at the time or somebody to bring him. It seems that he went and got these bows and these arrows himself. So he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. So he's got a bow and arrow and he puts his hands on it like he would. And Elijah got up from how he was laying down and he put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the east window and he opened it. Now, this is speaking against, against Syria and Syria is northeast of this location. But if you have a house that has an east window and a house that has a north window, you're not going to have a house that has a northeast window. So they probably picked the east one to, to shoot the arrow. He's shooting the arrow in the direction of Syria. So open the east window. He opened it. Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Now this is what he was commanded to do. And so um, this, this wasn't the, the end of it. So this is the word that Elisha has received from God. Elisha does not seem to be too surprised at the word. It would seem that God still spoke to him, even if nothing is recorded of what God gave him. So you would think, think there was some kind of surprise, but Elijah just seems very, very at home with all this. But um, I'm going to ask for one of our, our young people. How many young people that are here do not know the rest of the story? Does anybody not know it? Oh, we got a, we got a few of them that, that, that don't. All right, um, Miss Allie, pick one of your kids to to come on up here today. I got I saw four hands up. Who's coming? All right, here we go. Now that's the only time you hear me refer to my daughter as Miss Allie. That was weird, didn't it? But you all won't know her if I call her by what I call her. By. She's always listening to me. I'm the only one who calls her. I understand that. That's okay. I can be right and everybody else can be wrong. <laughs> now, here's what, here's what he is told to do. He's told to take the arrows that he has left. He shot one. It's gone. And he has the arrows that are left, and he says to strike the ground. Now, if I have you strike these into this, you'll probably ruin the, the sucker. So I'm going to have you pretend 
to take these, and I want you to pretend like you are striking them down on there. Would you do that for me? Go ahead, right here. There you go. All right, he did it once. Thanks very much. I appreciate that. Uh, you can go ahead and sit down. I just did that because that's the instruction that the king was given. So he said in verse 18, then he said, take the arrows. So he took them and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. Now you can tell right from that phrase that he was not expecting him to stop for three times. Now, if I told you to strike with the arrows, how many times would you strike it? I think a lot of us would be over there in the one time category. Verse 19. And the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Now the guy doesn't offer any, any fight on this. He struck more than one time. He must have understood how, that my striking this is me coming against uh, the Syrians. And so he did it three times and the man of God's angry. He's mad. Now he doesn't say strike it ten times, strike it two times. He just says strike it. And the guy kind of was a little timid with it, I guess, for Elisha's taste. He says three times, you only got three victories now. And he was mad at that. He said you could have wiped them out. Now how many victories does it take to wipe out a nation? We were watching the TV the, the other day, and they have resurrected an old old uh, advertisement. And my granddaughter was watching it, and she uh, was kind of fascinated with it. I said, yeah, that's from when I was a kid. How many remember that one for the, the uh, Tootsie Pop? Yeah. Have you seen that, that old one coming on up? How many licks does it take to get to the center of the Tootsie Roll? And, you know, he takes it to the turtle, and so I never made it. You have to go ask Mr. Al, and Mr. Al's over there. He says, let's find out. So he takes the thing, unwraps it, and one, two, three, and crunch, that's it. He hit it, he said, three times. <laughs> so we got three times there, too. But um, that's not actually the answer, is it? So Lissy was sitting next to me. I said, um, I said, have you ever had a Tootsie Roll Pop? She said, yeah. I said, uh, how many times did you ever make it to the center just looking? She said, no. I don't know that I ever have either, but uh, I haven't had one of them in a long, long time. But he stopped at three, and the prophet's upset. Probably would have been upset if he stopped at four. He wouldn't have been content except that he went to five or six. seems like he felt like he should know. You should have struck five or six times. But he didn't do it. Verse 20, Then Elisha died, and they buried him, and the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was, as they were burying a man, that suddenly they spied a band of raiders, and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. And Hazael, the king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz, but the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and regarded them, because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would not let, would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. Now Hazael, king of Syria, died. Then Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his place. 
And Joash, the son of Jehoaz, recaptured from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoaz, his father, by war. Three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. Three defeats. Now that's the deliverer, it would seem, that was uh, talked about in verse 5. When God said, send it deliver, it just didn't come exactly right then. But it did come. So they had success here, but they did not have as much success as they should have. Syria will eventually be defeated. It will eventually be wiped out. But it's just not going to be done by at, at this time. And it could have been. But it was not. Now one of the things that I want us to, to look at here today too is would God ever call you to do something that he didn't want you or empower you to finish? Now he called Jehu to get rid of the Baal worship. And Jehu did that. But he did not get rid of all the false worship. He called uh, this king of Israel to wipe out Syria. But this king of Israel did not wipe out Syria. He was called to. He was empowered to. Except when he came right down to it, he didn't drive the arrows into the ground the way that he should have. And he was exhorted for it. But he was, it was there. Just because God has given me something to do and I don't get it done does not mean I wasn't empowered to do it. It doesn't mean that I wasn't supposed to do it. Now, Matthew 14, verse 22. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time in this story. We've looked at this story recently. But it is in light of the story we just, we just looked at. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, caught him and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, here's a couple of questions for you. Has God put into the borders of what Peter is to do walking on water? Does Peter ever try this again? He does not, does he? It doesn't seem like that's something that God called him to do. Is it something within the borders of Jesus? Yeah, we have at least two times that it was recorded that he did it. And no big fanfare, he just went out there and walked in the water. It seemed to be something that was in his borders, something that was in his realm to do, but not in Peter's. But yet, why does Jesus tell Peter to do what he's really not called to do? 
if Peter is not called into walking on water, and do we ever read that Peter walked on water? I bet you Paul would have liked to have had that, that anointing. What, if you were Paul, you had the things going on in your life, wouldn't you like to have the anointing of walking on water? I don't care if the ship sinks. I'll get there. I think, he, I think if he has some prayer times, he said, I want some of that walking water anointing. That can help me out. If you're going to keep putting me on boats to go down into the water, give me some water walking anointing. But we don't ever read that, that it happened with Paul either. In fact, we don't read that it happened to anyone else except for Jesus. So why is it that Jesus allows Peter to come out of the boat? If it's not something that anyone else is supposed to walk in, why does he encourage Peter to walk in that anointing? Now, it's not something that he's called into and that he ever does, but does he do it? He does do it. So we can say that he was empowered to walk on the water even though it's not part of his calling and not within the borders of where he's supposed to walk. Wouldn't that be right? So why does Jesus say, come? Why does he just say, Peter, stay right there? I don't feel like fishing you out of the water here tonight. Just stay where you're at. I'll be right there. Why doesn't he just do that? Well, look at the question with which Peter asked him. Master, if it is you, command me to come. Well, was it him? Well, if he's given him a, a statement, if it is true, if it is you, command me to come, what choice does Jesus have? Does he say, don't come? Is he then saying it's not me? I don't know. We'll have to get to heaven to find out, I guess, for sure. Why did you say come? Does Jesus know that Peter can't do this for very long? I'm pretty sure that he does. So ask yourself this question. Would God empower me to do something he knew I couldn't get done? Hmm. This man in the Old Testament, this king, was empowered... The, the calling he was going to fulfill as a deliverer was to destroy Syria. But the empowering only involved three victories. What if, he, what if he decided to go for a fourth? What if we went out for a fourth battle? But the word that he was given, you've been empowered for three. But it's the will of God that Syria be wiped out. It was the will of God to do it through you. I idolatrous king but he would have used them so Peter put Jesus in a position to either deny who he was or answer the prayer so Peter was empowered and he could have walked in this anointing for the entire trip if he didn't give in to the negative forces around him the only reason he didn't continue to walk in this is because there were negative forces around and he gave in to them. 
So, look at this. He was empowered to do something he's not exactly called to do, had no purpose here, but was accomplishing it until the forces around him pulled him down. Pulled him out of that area of faith. See, sometimes we're always thinking that the reason I don't get some certain things done for the kingdom is because I'm not empowered to. God hasn't done something. But if God will empower Peter to accomplish something that's not part of his call, and he did it, what kind of excuse do I have left? If God will empower the king of Israel who worshipped idols for a people who worshipped idols, they needed a deliverer, and he empowered him to be that deliverer, how much more would he empower you? The enemy keeps sowing to us, you are a sinner, you messed up, you didn't do this, God cannot empower you. We hear that, and in our own minds we disqualify ourselves, kind of hang our head, can't get this done. You can write this down if you want to, I didn't put it in your outline for you, but people often make water-walking prayers with staying in the ship faith. We make water walking prayers with staying in the ship faith. And we get out there and we start to see some early returns, see some early benefits, but then the waves and the wind begin to sway us. God knows I'm not ahead of myself. I think this happens. I, I can't prove this, but I think this happens sometimes in the area of healing for people. They ask God for a healing, and it was granted to them. But God says you don't have what's necessary to sustain that. And when the winds and the waves rise up, He knows they'll go down. Would God do that knowing that you go down? Did He do it for Peter? Did he empower Peter to walk on the water, even though he knows Peter's going to give in to this? He's not going to stay in the area of faith. What kind of water-walking prayers have you made? Sometimes we get this idea, because the Scripture, I think we hit on this sometime before, but I can pray for anything I can imagine. He's able to do exceedingly above all that we ask or think well just because he's able to do it doesn't mean it's going to happen for you how many of you can imagine walking on water how many of you have ever imagined walking on water after reading the story with Peter I mean you imagine it I don't necessarily say you're believing God for it and just you can imagine it just because I can imagine it doesn't mean that it's going to get here see I have to do more than just I need to be able to sustain it. There's a parable that Jesus taught, and he told them, he says, we've got to count the cost. That's his, his purpose. It was. He said, someone doesn't decide to build a building without calculating whether they have the funds to build it. You don't take on a war, a battle, unless you have calculated that the forces that are with you are sufficient to go against the forces that are coming against you. 
sometimes we make requests of God that are beyond our faith. I'm not there at that, at that spot yet. And it seems like for a little while I'm walking on the water. And um, I'm seeing some immediate results. I'm seeing some things go. I believe in God for some kind of physical thing. You know, headaches, pains in your body, joints, organs, certain sickness or disease that comes against you, some chronic conditions, things like this that come against you. And when you first receive prayer or when you first begin to pray on your own, it seems like it's working. It seems like you're walking on the water. But then all of a sudden, that pain comes back. That discomfort returns. The condition seems to make its way back in. We were walking on water. But then we got our eyes off of Jesus and began to look at the waves. We began to feel the wind. The enemy was beginning to say to us, you can't be doing this can't be getting over this. Put this in your outline for you. Proverbs 10, 28. The hope of the righteous will be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. When we pray, we need to have hope. We need to have something. I'm praying and I'm hoping. This is, this is where I want to be. This is where I want to go. And the hope of right of the righteous will be gladness. But the expectation of the wicked will perish. Now I looked at that and I said, let's get some of the context of that. And I'll tell you what, I just was having too much fun with the context. So uh, you can go back and read the entire chapter and you will be blessed by it. I'm going to just read a few of these verses for you. Here in Proverbs chapter 10, I'm going to start at verse 11. The mouth of the righteous is a well of life, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. I want to have a mouth with a well of life, not one of violence. Verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Boy, can you apply that to some things going on around our world. Wisdom is found on the lips of him who has understanding, but a rod is for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. So you start trying to walk in wisdom for things you don't understand, it won't be wisdom, it'll be foolishness. Wise people store up knowledge, but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. The rich man, verse 15, the rich man's wealth is his strong city. The destruction of the poor is their poverty. The labor of the righteous leads to life, the wages of the wicked to sin. The labor of the righteous leads to life. But the wages, the end result of their labor, of the wicked, to sin. Now you're going to like some of these. I'm going to give you one verse so you're not going to like. You will, you will not like this one verse I'm going to give you. Where we leave off that? 16? 17. He who keeps instruction is in the way of life. But he who refuses correction goes astray. He who keeps instruction. See, God gives us instruction on how to accomplish our walking on the water need. When we follow the instruction, it leads to life. 
Whoever hides hatred has lying lips. Oh, ponder that for a little while. If you have hatred in your heart and you try to hide it, hide it, what you speak with your mouth will be lies. Whoever hides hatred has lying lips. And whoever spreads slander is a fool. Verse 19, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. In other words, shut up sometimes. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. The tongue of the righteous, I've heard people, uh, I think it's where they, they came out of, but you've heard people say this, that it is better to remain silent and let people think you are a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. I don't know who said that first, but it was, <laughs> it was good. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. Some people put an awful lot into the words that come from the heart of the wicked. And the Word of God says they are worth little. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of wisdom. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. To do evil is like sport to a fool. <laughs> what do you think of that? To do evil is like sport to a fool, but a man of understanding has wisdom. The fear of the wicked will come upon him, and the desire of the righteous will be granted. If you are wicked and you have fears, they will come upon you. And the desire of the righteous will be granted. You can kind of flash back to some stuff out of Job out of there, can't you? Verse 25, when the whirlwind passes by, the wicked is no more. But the righteous has an everlasting foundation. Verse 26, as vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so the lazy man to those who send him. If you send somebody to do something, they don't get it done. Don't send a lazy person. You need to send somebody who, has, who knows how to work. Verse 27, The fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. The hope of the righteous will be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. There's our verse. Verse 29, The way of the Lord is strength for the upright, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. Verse 30, the righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not inhabit the earth. I want to be one amongst those who are not removed. No, I promised you one. You liked all those, didn't you? I promised you one that you wouldn't like. Proverbs 24, 10. I'm going to read it for you first in the New King James. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Now let me read this to you a couple other ways. The New Living Translation puts it this way. If you fail under pressure, your strength is too small. The New Century Version. If you give up when trouble comes, it shows that you are weak. And here's the one you're going to like the least. It comes from the message. If you fall to pieces in a crisis, there wasn't much to you in the first place. <laughs> you see if we start something 
and adversity begins to come up, it is because we did not have the strength to sustain. When Peter got out of the boat and started something, and adversity came, he didn't have the strength to finish. When the king of Israel rose up to fight the king of Syria, he was supposed to have all the strength he needed to get it done. But he apparently didn't do something that he knew to do. Was he too lazy to strike the thing five or six times? Did he think it was just over? I don't know what caused him to do that. Or whatever it was. The prophet expected him to, to have done so. When we begin to start and take something that God has told us to take. Maybe it's a condition in your body and God says, if you want to change that, here's the first step. But we haven't done it. Or we have done it. And then the pressure begins to come up. Pressure that begins to say, this is not doing you any good. It's not helping you. you. Don't you feel worse? Or if you begin to get going and all of a sudden the pain comes in again. And the thought that can come to you. Oh, I thought I was here. Anybody go back and, and look at that video from Brother Higgins? A couple of you. Get the rest of you in on there. You'll, you'll enjoy some of those stories. He has some of the most worthwhile stories that I've ever heard. I have this quote in your bulletin today. If you didn't read it, I'm going to read it here for you because it's really important. This comes from somebody I had never heard of before. And I am not sure how to say his name. I consulted on, with other people to try and figure out how to say his name. So I'm going to give it the best shot. Jolly in the back there, I think, had the best way. And... If I don't get it exactly right the way he said it, is um, I can't even say it the way you said it. Is Israel? Israel more? Is Israel more? I would have said more Israel, more because that's just I don't. Know, I just figure I'm too Englishizing. I'm not sure where he is from. I don't know his uh, what country he's from. But I looked him up. This is not the only good quote he's got. Look him up. <laughs> he's got some. He's a young, young one, but man, he's got some good stuff. I'm going to go look at some more of his, his things. Here's it is. You need God's direction before you can prosper in anything you do. And this is something we've been teaching you. You need to get the word from God for where you're supposed to go, what you're supposed to do. Get God's direction. However, it takes your choices to begin. It takes your choices to begin. It takes your passion to stay on. It also takes your integrity to finish it well. There's some powerful words right there. I saw another quote of his. It said, it said, seven things negative people will do to you. They were good. I'll let you go find them. You, you can. Uh, I looked them up, came up right away. So if I looked them up and I found them right away, I am sure that you can too. But he also said right along the lines with this, never reject the opportunity to take the first step. The first step is the key to obtaining the experience you have longed for. See, with each of these stories we've looked at over the last number of weeks, we saw how many people had a first step. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. There was a first step that was there. Go show yourselves to the priest. There was a first step that was there. For some people, there was a second step. There was a third step. But they all had a first step. You may not know 
what the second step is, what the third step is. But God will tell you what the first step is. He won't tell you anymore until you take it. And you got to take that first step and you got to finish it. You got to stay with it. You got to keep it going. Once you do the first step and he shows you the second step, and you go on with the second step. But when you know that God has spoken it to you, stay with it. And understand, you won't be 100% sure. I don't think we're ever 100% sure. And sometimes we're just, well, I'm pretty sure that this was God. I felt like in my spirit it was God. And you, and you go with that. He doesn't usually show up with us with angels and say, thus you shall do. Seems like whatever step we make, there's always a faith, an element of faith to it. But he's going to give you that first step. There will be people who will rise up and will speak against your steps. Tell you that you can't do it. You have doctors who say that won't work. You will have friends who will tell you that's not what's doing it. The woman with the issue of blood, how many times have we talked about her? She's probably telling other people, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I know I shall be whole. How many of your friends saw her go through all that she went through before? And probably remind her of that. Said, don't do it. Don't put your don't put your faith in that. I don't want to see you destroyed again and come back all depressed because it didn't work. We'll have friends that will tear us down. Friends that will tell you it's not God. Why is God telling you to do that? You'll have all this stuff to come up. Adversity will come. But you got to make that first step. It takes your choice to begin. It takes your passion to stay on. And it will take passion. You'll have to find ways to keep igniting that passion to stay on with what God told you to do. And it also takes integrity to finish well. You making prayers that are way beyond where your boundaries are, way beyond where you should be? Are you making prayers to walk on water when you have no more faith than to stand in the ship? Sometimes people, I hear them, they'll throw out things, well, I'm just going to believe that this will happen. And uh, I don't, just take the condition, I don't think anybody's going through this, but say that you had a growth in your body. Well, I'm just going to believe that God will remove it. God can remove it. God can have it disappear in a day, in an hour, in a moment. He can have it just go away. Just because I say it, like that doesn't mean that's how it's going to happen. See, there's a building of faith on the inside of me. And God speaks to me and God says, this is how it's going to go. And when I have faith in the words that God spoke to me, I stay with it. Stay with it. Don't let it go. You go through and you saw that video, you saw Brother Hagin share with everybody. It's harder to get people in that place of healing the second time than the first. It can be done. It's just a little more difficult. But stay there. Just know the enemy is going to try and pull you off. Whatever it is you're trying to do for your body, whatever you're trying to do for your spirit, whatever it is that you're trying to do that God has given you to do, the enemy is going to try and pull you off. He will use whatever means necessary. He will throw out whatever lies. He will throw out whatever people. 
He will stir up wind and waves like you never even thought there could be. But just remember Peter. He was empowered to go someplace that, as far as we can tell, the Father never intended him to go. And if he would have kept doing what he started off doing, he would have been okay. He started off looking at Jesus. But then he finished looking at the waves and the wind. Start it right. Whatever God has told you to do, get it going. Go out there with everything that you've got. Don't be one of those kings who strikes the ground three times. Hit it with more than you need to do. I would like to see the prophet have to come and say, whoa, 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 hold on. We don't have to... <laughs> That's more than enough. That would have been better. That's how we should be. Have that passion to go after the thing. Would you all stand up with me? Father, I thank you that your calling is on our life, your direction you give to us, your wisdom you speak to us. And I thank you that understanding comes to us because we seek it. We're not going to be those who jump to conclusions based on a little bit of information. We're going to find out what did God say? What did God speak? then we're going to form our belief and our hope will come from the words that you spoke to us. And that hope will come about and it will be gladness for us. We will not be like the wicked who grab hold of hopes that they have no, no attachment to, no path to, and they fall away. Father, you help us to overcome all of the obstacles that are in our way, whether those obstacles be people, situations, wind, whatever it might be. I thank you for your overcoming power. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Glory to God. Over the course of these weeks, and I think we only have one more week of this left, but in the course of these weeks, has God shown you some things to do as first steps? That'd be one thing. Has God shown you past first steps that you let falter and let slip away? Have you been taking God's first steps and following after them? If any of those situations are true, any one of those those three, just raise your hand up. A couple people, okay. If it's something that you can write down and share with others, I'd love for you to do that. If it's something that you, you don't really feel good about doing, that's okay too. Sometimes things just need to be be there with you. And uh, yeah, certainly I can understand that. Some of the things I share with you over the course of this series are things I just probably would have not a not a shared, not a talked about. But you see, I began to tell you some things that God was doing before they were finished. Because I knew it came from God, and I knew if it came from Him, it would be finished.
Is there something that you can share along these lines? Because it helps our people to know. Brother, sister, so-and-so went through this. Brother, sister, so-and-so heard this. It's working for them. As you go through and you follow the steps that God gives you to pursue healing, jobs, whatever blessings it is that you need from God, God gives you those, that wisdom, that direction. You begin to step out of it. Your story will help minister to other people that are around you. And that will encourage them to go. That's what we're here for, to encourage each other. Thank God for each one of you. As you, as you go today, if you find something that you can, that you can write, write down, that you can share, I'd love to hear it. Have a good week. Listen to the people that are around you here. Share God's goodness and God's joy with them.